Well, hi everyone. It's good to be here, and it's good to be able to share this chapter of 1 Corinthians with you. Um, I'm afraid I'd, I wasn't aware that you'd, you'd done other bits out of 1 Corinthians. Is that right? Circumcision. I bet that was a good one. No, good. Good. Absolutely. Well, um, yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So, so what you've got this evening is, because I wasn't particularly aware of that, I've done quite a bit of introductory stuff to the, the whole book of Corinthians in actual fact. So um, if you've heard it all before, hard luck. Okay, so we've got Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, and it's the second of four letters that he wrote to this young church. For we know from references um, to visits and other writings that Paul wrote to them at least four times. Now, only two of those letters remain. The one we call 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul wrote, and uh, 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And if you want to check up my um, credentials there, you can look um, to references to these other letters um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, I hope you're noting all this down, and 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. Yeah, oops, 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 oops. Yes, of course. So, finding the other two letters would be a, a find as easy as great as the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You could just imagine the furore that would be if someone discovered somewhere those missing two letters of St. Paul to Corinthians. Now, there might have been more than four. There could have been five or six or ten or whatever. But um, we're aware of there being at least four. Um, but for now we have to make do with what we've got. So we've got 1 Corinthians, which is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, which is actually 4 Corinthians. Now, Corinth, um, who can tell me something about Corinth? Do you know anything about Corinth at all? Nothing. Good. Cosmopolitan, that's, that's a good word. I like that. Good. Yep, so Corinth was a vibrant multicultural place, a center of trade between East and West. It was full of people of all languages and nations going about their business. And for those that professed any kind of faith, um, not the Christian faith, but any kind of faith, there would have been a temple or a place of worship. And most people would have been Greek-speaking, but Corinth was part of the Roman Empire, and you would have heard many languages being spoken had you walked down the streets of Corinth back in the day. A bit like it is now in many of our towns and cities in the UK. As you know, I, I lived and worked for quite a long time in Dartford, and if you walked in the, the high street of Dartford, you, you, you would hear many different languages being spoken, and not many people speaking, speaking English, to be honest. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It was just the way it is. <clears throat> uh, right, so Corinth was a truly cosmopolitan city of great contrast with some extremely wealthy citizens who made their fortunes through trading and also great poverty amongst those for whom there was no welfare state and slavery for many Corinth bears, perhaps unjustly, a reputation for being a den of iniquity and immoral behavior and idolatry. 
The Romans particularly had their tradition of emperor worship. And there is much evidence to be found in the ruins of Corinth that you can still visit today. Corinth eventually fell with the rest of the Roman Empire some centuries later and has been ruinous ever since. Now we know from reading the history of Paul's missionary journeys in the book of the Acts of the Apostles that he physically visited Corinth at least three times. So it must have been somewhere that he held in high regard. It was whilst on his first visit that Paul founded the church at Corinth, based not on what we, as we might expect today, in a large building built specifically for the purpose, but rather the church in Corinth consisted of small gatherings, meeting in people's homes or in other venues. And the church grew rapidly, and this is probably why Paul had such an interest in the church in Corinth, because it was a church that grew rapidly. Um, from its humble beginnings, appealing as it did at first to the what we call the diaspora. I'm using lots of terms this evening. I'm sorry about that. Um, the diaspora is, is the scattering of uh, peoples. Um, and here we're talking about the Jewish people who uh, were scattered out of Jerusalem and, and were forced to go uh, all across the known world as it was in those days. Um, to, to get away from uh, persecution. And um, uh, the city of Jerusalem was sacked in AD, can't remember, 52 or something. Very soon, comparatively speaking, after Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, from, from there, from this diaspora, who, who were the sort of founders of the church, it spread to people of other languages and nations. And part of the problem that Paul attempts to tackle in 1 Corinthians is how the church should tackle this diversity issue. Christianity was the new kid on the block. And in those days, it had no rules or regulations one wishes the church today had no rules and regulations, but it does. Its theology was at an infant stage. It had no liturgy or hierarchical structure. Everything was new. Members of the church spoke different languages. Some would have spoken Greek. That was probably the, the most common language of those days. But some would have spoken Latin. Some would have spoken Hebrew, some would have spoken Arabic. Lots of different languages were, were there. Uh, and in this cosmopolitan situation, the church fought to survive and grow, despite opposition amid many other beliefs and traditions. And if this paints a bit of a negative picture of the church, the upside of it was that the church in Corinth drew dramatically and exponentially. That's a nice word, I like that one. Its members were keen and enthusiastic and desperate to share their newfound faith with others, with non-believers. Nothing held them back and no doubt Paul did everything within his powers to encourage all this enthusiasm, uh, to make sure that it was maintained. Uh, rapid growth also brought with it many problems, problems that we today would probably be delighted to have to deal with. Problems of where to meet, given so many were flocking to join this fledgling church. Problems of structure and leadership. Paul obviously couldn't be with them 24-7, so others had to be appointed as church leaders. And in their enthusiasm, there was a real risk 
that someone would get hurt, maybe physically, maybe mentally or emotionally or even spiritually. And 1 Corinthians is about Paul trying to set out for them how their newfound Christian faith should be formed and giving them numerous examples about how to apply Christian principles to everyday living. Later on, chapter 13, I'm sure is familiar to everybody. It's that great passage about love that's often uh, read out at uh, weddings. And for example, it's read at many wedding services, but it's not really about love. You know, it says love is kind, love is patient, love is all those other things. But it's not really about love in a marriage setting at all. It's about how to treat fellow Christians in church services, respecting one another, listening rather than shouting at the tops of their voices in order to be heard, not forming little cliques, uh, doing their own thing in every corner of the church. And you've got to imagine that there's the, here's this church made up of lots of different peoples and different races and languages, and that they'd all have their own little groups in different parts of the, the, the church, all doing their own thing, all doing different things at once. And there was no cohesion, no sort of... Uh, um, it, was, it was a noisy, it was chaotic, and it was uh, not very... Um, Worshipful, should we say. Respecting one another, Paul says, listening rather than shouting at the tops of their voices, not forming little cliques, doing their own thing, not praying aloud in tongues all at the same time, but rather acting out of respect and love for one another. If I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, says Paul, I am nothing. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. Uh, and I get a little bit concerned about church services today that perhaps could be said to be a little bit out of control, that are disorderly and a little bit disruptive. But that's for another day. That's not what we're focusing on tonight. Um, and I don't want to, um, uh, to, to, to uh, jump ahead. That's all for another time. Today it's chapter 8. But that too is about love and respect. Paul has embarked on a series of instructions about how the young Christians at Corinth uh, should regulate their lives and how to be, live out the Christian faith in particular circumstances. And so chapter 7, for example, has sections on marriage, uh, a passage called change of status, perhaps from being a, a slave to a free person and so on, um, attitudes to those who are not married and so on. And chapter 6 Paul deals with sexual immorality and lawsuits, and it's about setting out a framework in which these new Christians could maintain their faith and live out the Christian life. After all, there was precious little in Corinth that would give them much support and guidance. And I can imagine Paul's letter being read out to these congregations that were forming in the city uh, to small groups, much as the same we might to do, as we might do something in a house group today. Um, or give out an, a notice about coronavirus or something like that. Chapter 8, Paul turns to deal with an issue that may have been causing friction in the Corinthian church, and it's about, my favorite subject, food. Not trains, food. Not in the sense of stockpiling foodstuffs, such as pasta and rice, toilet rolls and hand gel, but rather whether it's okay for Christians to eat meat or other food that's been sacrificed 
to idols in this idol worship that I mentioned earlier. Now, at one level, the answer is simple. There are no restrictions on what Christians can eat. It's just food. So, in effect, anything goes. That it's food sacrificed to an idol has no bearing on the matter whatsoever. Meat is meat. Food is food. And just because it's been sacrificed to idols doesn't matter. It can't harm the Christian in any way. You're not going to be heavenly zapped because you uh, partake of eating food sacrificed to idols. God's love extends to all believers regardless of what they eat. What they eat does not define a Christian. There is no rule that says thou shalt not eat sausages on a Tuesday, for example. You can laugh at that if you want. I love verse 8. In my Bible it said, Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But there's a but. But, says Paul, there is another level. And beginning at verse 7, he reminds the Corinthian Christians that whilst on the one hand anything goes and is permissible for food, that is not the case for everyone, and not even everyone within the church. There's no hard and fast rule about food. But just be aware of the fact... I can't say it. I haven't got my teeth in. But just be aware of the effects your actions are having on others. And that's not just about eating food. For what I or we dismiss as being relatively unimportant for others may be a big deal. I may feel that it's okay to smoke the odd spliff. Not that I've ever done that. And that the use of recreational not recreational drugs is okay and it will have no adverse effect on me or my relationship with Jesus. But there may be someone who sees me behaving like this and thinks it must be okay for them too. But because that person is weaker and not able to resist, it leads to a much higher risk of addiction and the partaking of more harmful hard drugs. I as a Christian leader and I may have uh, only (laughs) I don't know why I wrote this. This is rubbish. It says, I, as a Christian leader, and I may have only done it once, I haven't, I've never taken drugs, have caused caused the downfall of that weaker person, and I will have to account for that uh, to, to Christ. I haven't, I haven't, I really haven't. Now, here's another, another interesting example, because some years ago, um, while I was living in Tunbridge Wells, back in the 70s and 80s, um, I was a leader of Tunbridge Wells Crusaders um, at Bible class for children. And I and others had a big debate about the drinking of alcohol. My friends and I used to go, enjoy going to local pubs in and around Tunbridge Wells for a pint or two as a social activity. Very enjoyable, meeting up with friends, having a pint and a chat. On one particular occasion, we were seen by the parents of one of the children in our crusader class, who clearly thought this was a very bad example to be setting before the children in our care, and took it up with the senior leadership team. A hotly contested debate ensued, which centered very much around these verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I think in the end, a compromise was reached, whereby on the one hand, it was accepted that having a drink at 
at a pub in the evening when the children were very unlikely to be around and not likely, therefore, to turn into raving alcoholics. It was also about taking responsibility and acknowledging there was a greater degree of restraint placed on the Christian leader when it came to setting an example. Other examples for us might be, well, what about swearing and blaspheming? And it seems that there are no boundaries these days. And in many TV programs, uh, included the F word. And I remember being quite shocked, and this is probably 15 or 20 years ago, when I heard the word bloody used in neighbours. Or perhaps another example might be gossip. So often as a minister, I would be told by people that they didn't come to church because of the hypocrites who did. Believing and doing one thing on a Sunday and behaving quite differently from Monday to Saturday. Gossip can be so harmful even when we don't realise it. So what is the principle that we need to apply to our Christian lives? Restraint, perhaps. Acting in love, definitely. Being responsible for our actions and being aware of the impact those actions might have on others. And also just the whole thing about matching what we profess to be our faith with the way we conduct our lives. That's what this passage is all about. It's about being responsible, taking responsibility for what we do and the way we act out our lives. That what we do matches what we say. In other words, walking the walk as well as talking the talk. And may our lives, as we, uh, this is very important for Lent, because we need to examine our lives and say, well, what do I need to change? Am I, am I having a bad influence on people uh, and therefore preventing them um, to come into a relationship with Jesus or maybe um, causing them to fall in a way that they um, wouldn't do otherwise had they not seen us doing something? Are we acting out our Christian faith in our lives every single day of the week? Shall we pray together? Lord, sometimes your word can to us be extremely challenging when we learn new things, where we understand that you want to say things to us uh, about the way we live our lives. Help us, Lord, as we read this passage from 1 Corinthians 8, to be aware of the effect that what we do has on other people, particularly those who are not Christians, who watch us to see how we react in given circumstances. Guide us, bless us, lead us. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, and enable us to do your work and your will. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.